We're going to share a word of Torah, and the word of Torah is mixed with a word of academia. If this is the wrong town for that, you'll let me know. So Parsha Naso is the longest Parsha in the Torah, 311 lines in the scroll. As such, it seems like a bit of a grab bag for material that does not naturally fit in other parashiot. The first two traditional aliyot describe a census of Kohathites, Gershonites, and Merorites, largely involved in portage. One of my favorite words uh, in the translation of the Torah. Portage, portage, and portage. And it has great importage. The setting up, the breaking down, and the carrying of the parts of the tabernacle. The third aliyah describes one who confesses that they have caused financial harm to another, and they publicly pay compensation of the original plus 20%. This is public ritual. If you're talking about someone forced into it because there was a witness that said that they had taken advantage of another financially, they actually pay an additional 20%. So this is where someone voluntarily whistleblows on themselves. According to the Mishnah Torah, this is required to be a public declaration ritual. The fourth reading first describes the sota ritual, wherein a jealous husband initiates a public ritual for his wife, wherein she consumes a scroll in which God's name has been magically erased, and if her body magically swells up, she is guilty. And the same reading continues with the Nazarite, the one who vows to abstain from alcohol and other intoxicants, and joins in many ways, but not entirely, the family of the priesthood for a set time, which then expires during which they don't cut their hair. The next readings recount the heads of each tribe, the Nasis, bringing their dedication offerings on successive days. And this is a little strange, because you took two huge things, the Nazarite and the Sota, and you put them in one aliyah, but then you have verse after verse that's virtually identical, because each of the the heads of the tribes brings a major offering for the dedication of the tabernacle. They each get their own day, but it's all pretty much identical. So it's a little bit weird in that way. So what do these things have to do with each other? The brackets of the parasha show it to be an act of theater. The tabernacle is, in addition to other things, a portable stage for public rites, for public rituals that involve individuals. So the beginning is the stage crew. As someone enormously awkward in high school with no friends, I did what everybody else does, which is I signed up for the theater group, and uh, I joined the people making scenery and doing lighting behind the scenes, and I made some great friends that way. So I know stage crew. We were the portage people, right? We wore all black and hung out on the catwalk despite my acrophobia, and we we carried the stuff and put it down and we knew when it was my job to go and break that thing down and put it away in that spot. So the beginning is who's in charge of the carrying and the objects, who's stage crew, and the end actually most of the commentators really connect that back to the stage crew because the dedication offerings of the, of the Nasis actually involve giving things like carts that are necessary for the portage of the tabernacle. So we kind of have this portable roving theater And then we find out some of these things that are public rituals that happen in front of everybody involving the priesthood. And so these are sort of ritual performances, theatrical rites taking place on the stage involving individuals. This is what the Sota, the Nazarite, public apology, and the tribal declaration offerings have in common. They are ritual performances. So one way to think of a rite or a public ritual, is that their goal is to reinforce the social structure of the tribe. 
You are an Israelite. You are a Levite. You are a Kohen. It's time for bat mitzvah. And you are now an adult. And you are a Jew. And this is what you do. And that so many uh, sort of functionalist scholars over the years have said the role of these public things is to reinforce the conventional social structure of the tribe. When you are in Torah times and you have these set rituals, these set scripts, the function of rituals is to know your place and to conform in order to reinforce the divinely mandated structure. So there's an alternative view of this. came out of work in the 60s and through the 80s was popular. I used to have to study it, which means it was popular in the 80s. And it came from the British uh, anthropologist theorist Victor Turner. And he said about the standard structural functionalist view, he said that it actually misses the subversive aspects of the rites and rituals. In his study of African rites of passage, the ritual process, structure, and anti-structure, published in 1969, Turner revealed the drama and flux of everyday social life and heightened the agency of rites in affecting social change, which he considered to be their fundamental role. Building upon his mentor's observation that rites of passage and other rituals are liminal in that they temporarily extricate participants from their social statuses. He argued that these rights are often subjunctive because they invite new possibilities. I'm going to explain this in simple terms, but I'd like to do it in the fancy terms because um, they made their living writing this stuff. Rights enable participants to experiment with alternative social relations, invent new social relations, and even sometimes engage in role reversal. Okay, let's take an example that he used to use. African rite of passage for the royal prince. Before the royal prince sort of, he goes through a rite of passage so he can now be, take his place in the tribe. So the ritual actually is kind of King Arthurian, which is he actually has to become a commoner and he gets together in a kind of communist structure with other commoners. So Turner says, isn't that the opposite of saying you are taking your place as the leader in a very hierarchical structure? when the actual right that they go through is he's in a communist structure, communal like kibbutz structure, where he's just a commoner. So think of rights for a moment as actually they're not reinforcing who you are. They're kind of giving you a little bit of the opposite. And so they open you up to actually change. They are, sub they are subverting the conventional elements. So let's look at each one really briefly. So the individual repentant. The person who says, I know I make my living sometimes taking advantage of people who don't realize that I didn't really give them their deposit back on their apartment, their rental deposit, or I told that person it was a seven-acre field that I rented to them. It was really six and a half. The person who knows that by their nature, they take advantage and they want to change. And they go through a public ritual on stage in front of everyone. And they say, Marav, I took advantage of you. And uh, I want a public to say, and it's in front of everyone. They're actually going against who they are. And they're living publicly for a moment. They're living the opposite. I'm, I'm a good person. I'm not that person. Isn't that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? How is our experience of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur 
actually entering into a liminal state. It's not like you're all Jews and you're sheep and God's the shepherd and know your place. It's actually more like, let's give you a chance to think maybe you're something different than you thought you were. Now, it may not stick. And so you may need to do it again because sometimes these rites are, you're passing through this and maybe you go back, but that's why you can always do it again. Think of the next one, the, the sota. You think, well, this is just reinforcing exactly what I hate. Jealous and very likely dangerous husbands and wives who are uninterested or neglected or um, is just reinforcing exactly what I don't like about this toxic situation. But now think of it in a slightly different way. Several commentators say that the woman does, has, well, the woman does have to agree to undergo the ritual. That's clear in, in Mishnah Sota. She doesn't have to go through the ritual. So what she can do is she can say, the heck with you, and I'm going to leave the marriage without my ketubah, um, without my dowry. Right? They can leave the marriage without their dowry. They don't have to undergo the ritual. They voluntarily say, I want to undergo that ritual, whose conclusion is foregone. Unless there's something I don't know about eating little pieces of scroll and then magically going gigantic. Magical transformation. And then the husband who, and knowing a little bit about jealousy myself, um, it's one of the ugliest emotions a person can have, that the husband is stuck in this jealous thing. And if he's going to go through it, then God and the priest is publicly saying that his wife is innocent. So think about it. They're actually in a way going against where they just were. He's been jealous, and he's going through a rite in which he's publicly playing the role of someone who's like, you were fine all along. I was wrong. And she's going through a ritual, wherever she's coming from, of saying, I want to stay married to you. So it looks like a reinforcement of an incredibly ugly, toxic situation could be viewed as a ritual of remarriage. right? Because before God and the community, they're basically saying, I want to be with this person, and they are then unable to doubt her absolute innocence. So you're going through the opposite in a way of state, and then maybe like the penitent or you on Rosh, me and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I'm giving my sense, myself a chance to live this way, right? I want it to stick. I want it to stick. The role, as Turner says, going through it to go the opposite of where you've been. The Nazarite's an easy one, the Torah version of AA. This is exactly what AA is. They go in, you know, they say, I've been one day sober, and I'm giving my vow that I'm going to be two months sober. And they say, okay, but you can't go home and you can't hang out with your friends because now you're part of our family. You're, you're, you know that family from which all of your problems came or you think they came or they may have come. Of course, you're going to go back to your normal role of 80 years of therapy. But in the meantime, why don't you just adopt that you're the kind of person that doesn't need to drink? But don't go back to the family. Hang out with us. You're now a temporary priest. Isn't that what you do at an AA meeting, right? I've been a month sober. And, and, and people are like, you can be this person. You can be this person. Well, actually, I'm only two days sober because I wasn't that person last week. That's okay. You can undergo this ritual again. You're an alcoholic, but you're not an alcoholic. You're an alcoholic who can live in a different way. It's very ritualized AA. They're not just like, well, let's freeform it. You know what I mean? What do you want to talk about today? It's not, it's not a seminar. It's a ritual. And by saying those things, you undergo that state. And then even at the end, the princes. Some of the rabbis, not many of them, I like the, I like the minority position on this, say that the princes are actually being humbled. These are people who are so self-important that they did not earlier give 
their offerings to the temple. These are pretty wealthy offerings. Why weren't they given before this part of the book of Numbers? Some of the commentators say they were too proud and too haughty. They should have been specially invited. They're so self-important, they're the leaders of their tribes, but they have to give the exact same thing that everybody else gave. They have to do it publicly in this public ritual. So in a way, they're also just becoming like, I know you're the head of the tribe, but today you're just another person bringing an offering. And maybe you can bring a little bit of that into your life, even though afterward you'll go back to the structure in which you came from. So essentially, these are public plays where the words stay the same, not unlike our holidays, not unlike the prayers we did today, which is also a rite that you go through. And so it's not your creativity in words. You're inhabiting a character. And by inhabiting that character, subverting the person in some ways you are conventionally, you're not reinforcing your conventional self. You're making possible a different kind of self to bring into your world. And so I ask you for a moment, what does coming to services do for you? We're now in the middle of a ritual performance. How does this take a little bit of your conventional self and put you in a different character and open up a possibility for how you are a process, a work in process, and the openness and possibilities therein you bring back into the conventional frame?